Hello and a warm welcome from me, Paul, the true crime enthusiast. I hope you've all had a lovely Christmas. Now I know this week that I've said that I've done my last episode for the year on Tuesday's episode, but I've also been as subtle as a piano landing on your head that I've got a little Christmas bonus gift from the true crime enthusiast. And here it is. Before we get to it though, I once again would like to send out my thanks and gratitude to everyone who has listened in and supported the podcast and my blog this year. It's only just three months old now, and so far it's been so much more successful than I could have ever imagined, and it just keeps growing. That's down to you guys for listening in, and your great and honest feedback, your very kind reviews and shares, and the help, plugs and advice I've received from several fellow podcast hosts. I hope that you all know who you are, and thank you guys from the bottom of my heart, you've all helped me so much. What a wonderful community the True Crime one is. Absolutely great people the world over, and fantastic to be a part of. I look forward to 2018 and to be bringing you more tales and cases. So enough of the Oscar acceptance caterwauling from me, and here we have it. A Christmas bonus from the True Crime enthusiast that is just my way of expressing appreciation. Constructed on the bankside of the River Thames, the town of Windsor in Berkshire will be famous to most because for nearly a thousand years now, its most famous building has been an official royal residence, Windsor Castle. It's the favoured weekend home of Queen Elizabeth, until a very damaging fire nearly burned it to the ground in 1992, and which inadvertently led to Buckingham Palace being opened to the public because it would help pay for the restoration. It's a massively popular town with tourists who all go clamouring down there to try to get a glimpse of the royals and pretty soon Harry and Meghan who will undoubtedly grace there occasionally I'm sure. Holiday makers who come down to enjoy what looks a pleasant part of the country. I don't know because I've never been there. By holiday making or on a houseboat or on the Thames. I've always quite fancied that as a break myself. I think it looks wonderful. It's like a different world I'm sure. And I'm also sure that it's affluent due to its proximity to London. Plus the Queen isn't exactly going to spend her weekends in the middle of some urban war zone, is she? Like, where do you want to go for the weekend, ma'am? Well, I want to go to the place where they filmed Robocop. Not going to happen, is it? And for kids and adults alike, there is also a big Legoland theme park near to the town. And in 2016, this was the most visited theme park in the country and the 10th in Europe. I wonder if there isn't anything they can't make with Lego right now. It seems to be everything. I bet they can't make it not hurt when you tread on it in bare feet though, can they? But the town of Windsor hasn't always been so idyllic, as it was the scene of a horrific crime back in the early 1980s. It was early in the morning one August day that a commuter walking to work was to make a horrific discovery that would lead to an investigation that lasted and a wait to bring a killer to justice for more than 30 years. Former Thames Valley Police Detective Superintendent Kenneth Lilly is long since retired now and it was about 6.30 in the morning of the 28th of August 1981 that he received the telephone call that was to lead to the longest and most personal case of his career. Minutes after that phone call he found himself standing at a towpath that ran alongside the part of the River Thames that flows through Windsor. A member of the public walking alongside the river on his daily morning commute to work had made the shocking discovery of the naked body of a young girl, dumped unceremoniously on the towpath just off the town's Barry Avenue. The body was that of a teenage girl and had been dumped lying face down. The body was naked, 
with no sign of any of the girl's clothing nearby, and there was very little blood, either on the body or on the ground where the corpse lay, or on the surrounding area. The area was a relatively quiet one, with just a few houseboats moored up nearby, and while the area was sealed off, police immediately halted each of these from leaving, and began questioning the occupants to see if they had seen or heard anything that could shed light on what had happened. No one had, none of the occupants had seen or heard anything out of the ordinary. A home office pathologist was summoned to the scene, and when the pathologist arrived, a cursory examination was carried out whilst the body was still in situ. In the opinion of the pathologist, marks to the neck seemed to show that death had been caused by the girl having her throat slashed. After the body had been photographed at the scene, tapings were taken from the dead girl to try to preserve any forensic evidence that may possibly have remained on the body. This was a few years before the onset of DNA profiling, and as such there was no such database in existence, so samples had to be taken and retained, and compared only when evidence was obtained from a suspect arising in the investigation that would provide a possible or likely match to the sample in storage. I mean, this is even before DNA was discovered as being unique to an individual, as was discovered by Dr. Alec Jeffries in 1984. Pop trivia quiz, true crime fans. Once this was complete, the body was then removed from the scene and taken away for a full post-mortem. The post-mortem was later to show the extent of the injuries that the victim had received, and it made police realise that they were looking for a sadistic killer that they were convinced could and likely would strike again. The victim had been savagely sexually assaulted, and death was indeed due to her having her throat cut from behind. This was more hacked, really, as it had been done by at least four and possibly five deep slashes. There were also severe and sadistic mutilations to the genitalia and genital area of the victim, and the pathologist was of the impression that the attack had happened at a different location, and the mutilations had occurred either when the victim was unconscious, or perhaps even dead. Meanwhile, the first priority of the investigation was to find out the dead girl's identity, but this drew an initial blank. There hadn't been any reports of missing girls, at least not in the Windsor area. Within hours, this was to change. 13 miles away from Windsor, in the West London town of Hanwell, mother of three, Carol Walterton, had gone to work uneasy that day, due to her daughter Claire having not been in her bed when Carol went to wake her up that morning. 17-year-old Claire Walterton was a typical teen of the time, full of fun and she was well-liked and had lots of friends. She worked as a key punch operator and was a conscientious girl who, although outgoing, was also very close to her family and particularly her older brother, and she always made a point of adhering to the 10 o'clock curfew that was imposed on her by her mother and stepfather. On the previous evening... Claire had left the family home on Yeading Lane and had gone out to see her boyfriend, who worked as the manager of an amusement arcade on the nearby Uxbridge Road. When by nearly 11 o'clock p.m. she still wasn't home, Carol Walterton was cross and went to bed, listening out for Claire, and although tired, was unable to sleep until she came home. Carol heard laughter outside the house just after 11 o'clock p.m., and Carol thinking in her half-asleep state that she had heard Akigo in the door, decided to give Claire a piece of her mind the following morning and to just go to sleep cross. This is long before mobile phones were commonplace as they are nowadays. 
When the next morning Claire wasn't in bed, Carol went to work, trying to convince herself that Claire had just got up early and headed out to work, or had perhaps even stayed at her boyfriend's house the evening before. But she just couldn't shake the unease that must be a parent's natural instinct that kick in when you think that something's wrong. After ringing around Claire's friends to see if they knew her whereabouts, but to no avail, Carol rang Claire's workplace. She became alarmed when Claire's employers expressed surprise and annoyance that she hadn't arrived for work that day. Not knowing what else to do, Carol contacted police and reported Claire as a missing person. At about the same time that she did, the national news broke the story of the body that had been found in nearby Windsor, and Carol heard the bulletin. When interviewed for a documentary many years later, Carol said, I just knew. Don't ask me how, but my heart sank and I just knew. So police now had a potential identity for the mutilated girl that they'd found on the towpath, and the close proximity of where the body was found from Claire's home gave detectives the suspicion that they were indeed correct in identifying the victim. Thames Valley officers were dispatched to the family home, and after seeing a recent photograph of Claire, they realised that these suspicions were correct, and the victim now had a name, Claire Walterton. It then fell to officers to deliver the grim and tragic news to Claire's family, and while they attempted to comprehend the news and to deal with their shock and grief, the hunt for Claire's killer got underway. While house-to-house inquiries got underway the length of Oxbridge Road and Yeading Lane, Claire's last known movements were established. That Thursday evening, she had gone to the amusement arcade on the nearby Oxbridge Road where her boyfriend worked to spend some time with him. Now the normal routine was for Claire's boyfriend, who was older than her and who drove, to give her a lift home. But this Thursday evening, the two had had a minor row, and at about 20 past 10, Claire had stormed off, telling him she would walk home. Her boyfriend had managed to catch up with her in his car some minutes later and had pulled alongside her to persuade her to get in and be taken home. But Claire had refused and in the heat of an argument her boyfriend had driven off and left her to walk the mile back home. He was the last person who knew her to see Claire alive for somewhere on that mile back home she met her killer. As the first person of interest, obviously in any case like this, Claire's boyfriend was arrested on suspicion of murder. But his alibi of going straight home and walking his dog was corroborated by a neighbour and he was released without charge and eliminated from the inquiry. The 50-strong investigation team at the Metropolitan Police Major Incident Room, who had taken over running of the inquiry, had to now look elsewhere. They decided to use the media to their full advantage, and as well as extensive press coverage and televised appeals and interviews with investigating officers, a reconstruction of Claire's fateful journey that evening was made. It did bring to police attention a possible sighting, although a frustratingly vague one. Following the appeal, two women came forward to say that on the Thursday evening they had been near the intersection of Yeading Lane and Uxbridge Road at about 10.40pm when they saw what they described as a girl being pulled into a dark car. This was around the time Claire was last seen and was on her route home, but that was the extent of the women's descriptions. They could not provide any physical description, nor describe the car beyond its colour. They were even hypnotised in an attempt to draw out more information from this sighting, but this was to no avail. This was the extent that they could remember. 
After six months, police still had no further leads to go on. Nowadays, in the age where everywhere is saturated with CCTV coverage, in 1981 there was none of that. No one else came forward to say they'd seen Claire apart from the two women with the vague sighting. All house-to-house inquiries had drawn a blank. All local known sex offenders and those with convictions for violence had been looked at and ruled out. And even national inquiries had drawn a blank. Crime rates don't slow down. And with the lack of avenues of the inquiry, the investigation was forced to wind down as other pressing inquiries required police manpower. Detectives were forced to shelve Claire's case, with each officer and especially Detective Chief Superintendent Lilly convinced that the only way they could now possibly catch Claire's killer was if he struck again. And each officer on the inquiry was convinced that sadistic killer would strike again sooner or later. Police forces do share information, and the details of Claire's murder were sent to every force in the country in case a murder with a similar modus operandi should occur on their patch. It was nearly three years later, in December 1984, when Detective Chief Superintendent Lilly got the telephone call that he had been expecting, but equally dreading. Buckinghamshire Police contacted Detective Chief Superintendent Lilly to tell him they'd found a body in a wooded area on Denham Golf Course, the body being that of a naked woman. The woman had horrific injuries and extensive mutilation, having been severely beaten about the head and neck with an instrument, and with having her left breast being cut off, which was never found. Immediately, the similarities between this victim and Claire were apparent. Both had been stripped and their clothing taken away. Both had been mutilated with a sharp instrument. Both were sexually assaulted and both bodies were left on display in a public place where they could easily be found. It looked like Claire's killer had struck again. The woman was identified as 29-year-old Deirdre Sainsbury and as the investigation into her death was launched and a press appeal made, it brought police a stroke of luck almost immediately. Deirdre had been seen hitchhiking on the South Circular Road in Roehampton on the evening of 22nd of December 1984, and a witness, who was conscious of a Reader's Digest magazine article he'd recently read about the dangers of hitchhiking, saw this happen and made a note of the vehicle registration number. Now although this was fortunate, I'm a bit of a ponderer as to what the witness was going to do with these registration numbers. Perhaps he was making notes about suspicious goings-on he had seen whilst driving around like some sort of lone moral crusader. A bit like Michael Knight without the talking car, perhaps. Anyway, thanks to this witness, police had a lead early on in Deirdre's case, and they were soon knocking on the owner's door. The vehicle was registered to a 37-year-old travelling salesman named Colin Frederick Campbell, who lived in Acton in West London. Detectives went and spoke to Campbell and he admitted picking up Deirdre but claimed that he had dropped her some miles further along the road. A search of Campbell's house and garage revealed female clothing hidden behind shelving in the garage and these were identified as the clothes that Deirdre had been wearing when she was last seen. He was arrested and taken in for questioning. Under questioning, Campbell admitted that he had had Deirdre in the car where he had stopped and had propositioned her sexually, which she had refused, and they had begun to fight. Campbell claimed that he had struggled with Deirdre, and that she had become unconscious when he had beaten her around the head with a hockey stick, 
which he had in the car due to his enthusiasm for amateur hockey. He had then realised that she was dead and claimed to have panicked and had stripped and left the body on the golf course, but had mutilated it to disguise it as the work of a maniac. He was to deny any sexual assault. Campbell was charged with the murder of Deirdre Sainsbury and remanded in custody awaiting trial. Detective Chief Superintendent Ken Lilly had a good old-fashioned copper's hunch that this quite possibly was the killer of Claire Walterton and went to visit Campbell whilst he was on remand awaiting trial to question him about his movements on key dates that corresponded with key dates and times in Claire's investigation. Campbell was, however, to make no confession and with no evidence to present to him linking him to Claire, Detective Chief Superintendent Lilly was forced to wait until either evidence became available or Campbell offered a confession. Campbell stood trial for the murder of Deirdre Sainsbury at Reading Crown Court in July 1985, where he pleaded not guilty to murder, but guilty to manslaughter due to diminished responsibility, offering the defence that he had killed her whilst he was in the midst of suffering an epileptic episode. The jury rejected this defence, and just seven months after he killed her, Colin Campbell was found guilty of the murder of Deirdre Sainsbury. He was sentenced to life imprisonment. Eleven years into his life sentence, Campbell appealed against his conviction for murder and attempted to get the charges reduced to those of manslaughter. He was offering the same defence that he had at his trial in 1985, that he had committed the killing whilst in the midst of an epileptic fit. But this time, Campbell had managed to get a medical expert who testified that if the appellant had been given the wrong medication, then it was quite possible that he could have committed the murder whilst having an epileptic fit, and the conviction for murder was an unsafe one based upon this new testimony. It led to Campbell's conviction for murder being quashed in 1999 and a retrial ordered. This time, Campbell offered a guilty plea to the charge of manslaughter and was convicted again, but was again sentenced to life imprisonment for a second time. The jury decided that he was still a massive and serious danger to the public, and consequently he was too dangerous to be released without going before a parole board. This was not the result Campbell had been expecting or hoping for. Over the years, Claire's family and friends had learned to exist with the loss of their beloved daughter, sister and friend, but it was just sort of accepted. It never got any easier or less painful for them. Every member of her family was to suffer for many years as a result of trying to come to terms with Claire's horrific murder even leading to one of her brothers having a nervous breakdown and spending a considerable amount of time in hospital. I find it unimaginable what a thing it must be to even try to come to terms with the loss of a loved one so violently and tragically, but to also know that the killer is potentially still out there and has never been made to face justice for the crime, well, it must just sicken a person. It would sicken me. And this is not unique, there are many still broken families out there who must wait for the person responsible for their heartache to be found and made to face justice for their crime. This is the beauty of cold case reviews and it's my belief that these should not just occur when there's funding available, they should always be funding available for just this. And a national specialised department, perhaps staffed by a team of retired or ex-law enforcement personnel, even logical thinking people with a drive and vested interest in the subject, like the TV shows New Tricks or Waking the Dead. 
It's like my dream job is that I can't tell you how much. By 2011, Campbell had spent a further 12 years in prison after being found guilty of manslaughter for Deirdre's murder, but by that time had been categorised for several years as a Category D prisoner and was being allowed out of prison on a day release for up to five days each month, almost as if he was being prepared for possible release one day. But it was also in 2011 that Thames Valley Police undertook a cold case review as funding was available, and based on technological advances, there was a decent chance of getting a result in some older unsolved cases that they had on their books. For many long-serving detectives, the first case that sprung to mind was Claire Walterton's case. The tapings of fibres taken from her body back in 1981 were still in storage. Could it be possible that now, even 30 years later, that the technology may be in place and a DNA match to a killer may be available? The principal investigator of Thames Valley Police's major crime review team, Pete Byrne, was a detective constable working on his first murder inquiry back during the original hunt for Claire's killer in 1981, and he had never forgotten the unsolved killing. Still eager to get a result and see Claire's killer identified and prosecuted, he requested that the original tapings taken from Claire's body in 1981, which were still held in storage, as we've said, be sent off for a forensic examination to try to establish a DNA profile. So they were sent off, and on these tapings a DNA profile was found that was a match with Claire, and also a profile was found from a match from an unknown male. This profile from the unknown male was then run through the National DNA Database, and a partial match was found to an existing profile that was held on record. It was the opinion of scientists who performed the test that the partial match was a one in a million chance of the DNA sample belonging to anybody other than Colin Campbell. This was a massive result and was enough to get Campbell recategorised and sent back to a closed prison, but detectives wanted more to cement a prosecution before charging him with Claire's murder. Therefore, additional forensic work was needed, and the results were further analysed by a professor of statistics from University College in London. He was to give his opinion, following a thorough and detailed review, that the chances of the DNA profile coming from anyone other than Colin Campbell as a one in one billion chance. Campbell was arrested and questioned over the murder of Claire Walterton on the 27th of November 2012, more than 30 years after she'd been so brutally murdered. He was to deny killing Claire, deny even recognising her when photographs of her were shown to him, claiming that he may have met her when he'd been playing hockey, but he could not recall specifically meeting her. When it was put to him that his DNA had been found on her body, he could not explain how it had got there, only offering the possible explanation that he may have possibly, again without his recollection, gone into the amusement arcade where Claire had spent her final evening on earth and possibly brushed past her, leaving a trace of himself on her person. He could not explain how the DNA sample of his had been found in the area of Claire's buttocks. Campbell was subsequently charged with the murder of Claire Walterton and stood trial for her murder in November 2013 at Reading Crown Court, to which he pleaded not guilty. Opening the prosecution's case, 
Peter Wright QC began by describing the circumstances in which Claire's mutilated body was found lying face down on the canal towpath by a member of the public on the 28th of August 1981. He continued by detailing the extent of the horrific injuries and mutilations that had been inflicted upon Claire and how she'd been attacked at another location before being dumped where she was found. He told of the initial investigation and how the tapings had been taken and stored and how breakthroughs in forensic science had allowed for a DNA profile of Claire's likely killer to be obtained. That person, he claimed, was shown by a DNA match to be none other than Colin Campbell. Mr Wright QC also told the jury that they would hear evidence from two scientists, one claiming that the match was one million times less likely to be from anyone other than Colin Campbell, and another scientist who would testify that this likelihood was one in one billion that the sample was from anyone other than Colin Campbell. The defence could only offer the feeble defence of the defendant not being able to recall the events of August 1981, or ever having met Claire Walterton. In light of the impressive DNA evidence, the conclusive DNA evidence, plus the parallels to the defendant being a convicted killer already serving a life sentence for a near-identical murder, a jury of eight men and four women did not spend long debating the fact and found Colin Campbell guilty of the murder of Claire Walterton. Campbell was again sentenced to life imprisonment, with the recommendation that he serve a minimum of at least 24 years that was to be served concurrently to his current sentence. Due to his age at sentencing, which was 66 years old, this will effectively mean that he's likely to die in prison. He has never once expressed any remorse for his crimes, instead claiming to not be able to remember committing either killing. Following the guilty verdict, the families of both Claire and Deirdre commented on his conviction. Claire's stepfather, Terry Pierce, described how the family felt. This feels as raw as it did 32 years ago. Claire was a hard-working girl who was very kind and would always help people. She'd speak to anybody who needed help and did whatever she could for them. Claire's murder had a shocking and distressing permanent effect on our lives. We've been emotionally scarred for life and have a very cynical outlook to life now. Claire went out to meet some friends and never came home. We never had the chance to say goodbye. Colin Campbell's evil and terrible act devastated our lives and left us wondering who was responsible for over 30 years. The family of Deirdre also commented on the verdict. We all still think of Deirdre every day and this trial has brought a lot of the emotions back for us which were felt when Campbell was tried for his crime all those years ago. Our family would like to extend its deepest sympathy to the relatives of Claire Walterton and we are pleased their long wait for justice is finally over. Colin Campbell is a dangerous individual who cut short the lives of two young women in their primes and has never accepted any responsibility for his actions. Many detectives believe that Campbell is responsible for a number of other unsolved killings of young females up and down the country in the years preceding his arrest in 1984, with many savage unsolved crimes fitting his modus operandi of sexual assault, severe mutilation and battery, plus the removal of clothing. Consider it, at the time he killed both Claire and Deirdre, he was a travelling salesman. He killed both of his known victims after picking them up in a car, and they were found miles from where they were taken from. 
a travelling salesman would have the length and breadth of the country to pick possible victims up. Can it really be believed that someone whose both known victims were so savagely killed and such extensive sexual mutilation performed upon them, which was obviously done for his gratification, can have had a dormant period of over three years between murders? I believe that a detailed study of Colin Campbell, his early life, his work history, and movements and details of any relationships, including the timescale of when he was in a relationship, should be undertaken to see if he can be definitively linked as a serious person of interest in a number of unsolved crimes. I'm convinced that this man, who if you look him up, actually from his younger mugshot, looks like Hatchet Harry from Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. I'm convinced he's responsible for other sex crimes and murders apart from that of Claire and Deirdre. This is a monstrously evil killer who tried a cock and bull story of claiming that he killed each girl in the midst of an epileptic fit. Now whilst I'm in no way claiming that it's completely impossible for this to happen, to me it just stretches credibility that a person can strip, rape, strangle and mutilate a person, move a body to a different location and dump it, all without any recollection whatsoever and while still be able to maintain such a level of control of their own actions and ability that they can, for example, drive safely away, avoid being seen and detected, and be able to hide evidence? Nah, not really happening. For the same thing to happen again in almost identical circumstances three years later, well, how unlucky can a guy be? Or not unlucky, because Colin Campbell is a blatant coward and a remorseless liar. Again, his is not a familiar name to the true crime reader, perhaps because he has at least been under lock and key for the past 33 years. His fe- he has featured recently in the press, where it's been reported that he's suffered from rectal cancer, and whilst this is a horrendous disease that would not be wished upon anyone, it's surely difficult to solicit much sympathy for a monster like Campbell. Also reported was that he was whining in letters, complaining that prison bosses had banned him from buying bedding from Argos, and instead forcing him to buy bedding from the prison canteen. This brought a tear to my eye, I mean, hasn't the man suffered enough? I sincerely, sincerely hope that my sarcasm shone through there. Campbell went on to complain in these letters, I recently tried to order bedding from Argos and was told that I have to buy my bedding from the prison canteen. The bedding sold by the prison canteen is two to three times more expensive than any sold by Argos. When I queried this, the reply I received was, Prisoners are only allowed to purchase bedding from the prison canteen because of the particularly high fire standards that apply to the materials used. I think the truth of the matter is that somebody is making a profit from this monopoly. Personally, I believe that the most important factor there is that Campbell feels discomfort and injustice. Have a search and check him out online. He looks like someone's granddad or someone you'd bump into at home base or in the garden centre. But instead he's a monstrously evil killer who took the life of at least two young women. He is in the best possible place and will deservedly die in prison. Then there are likely more victims of this man out there, perhaps buried somewhere perhaps some not attributed to him, and the calculating evil of this man means that very likely he will take these secrets to the grave with him, and that's not right, is it? So the case of Claire Walterton, savage and tragic, I think you'll agree. 
If you do do an online search, there are several documentaries featuring the case that are available and make for interesting viewing. It does serve to show that justice does finally catch up with some perpetrators, even many years later where there's considered little hope of a solution. I hope that you found the case as fascinating as I did whilst researching it, and I was glad to bring it to you so that the name of Claire Walterton does not rest with a forgotten and her story is heard. And on the back of such a tragic tale, it's a reminder that I shall be back with business as usual and names such as Claire's very early in the new year. So keep your eyes and your ears open for that. And gushing again, the biggest thanks ever to everybody for getting the true crime enthusiast where it is. You guys are awesome, each of you, and I'm forever grateful. You know where to find me? I wish you and yours all the very best wishes for 2018. And from Paul, the true crime enthusiast, Take care guys and I'll catch you sooner than you know it. Goodbye for now.